Hello, welcome back to Third Space in the Podcast, where we explore important topics on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your host, Anhui. Today, we continue our interview with Dr. Lakshmi Ganapathy, a Pediatrics Infectious Diseases Physician at Boston Children's Hospital, Associate Director of the Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program, as well as the Pediatrics Instructor at Harvard Medical School. She graduated from NUS Medicine in 2005. In our previous episode with her, she shared her beginnings in global health work, the opportunities for global health in Singapore, and how do we avoid the pitfalls of volunteerism. In this episode, she continues the discussion by elaborating on some of the ways in which clinicians are trained in Singapore and in the US. She suggests that ideas such as implicit bias training and provision of culturally competent care are very much relevant in Singapore's context. Lastly, she encourages us to explore topics such as law, sociology, and economics in order for doctors to have a diversified skill sets to tackle the multitude of other factors that affect patient health and therapeutic outcomes. So this is something which I, I grapple a lot with, is, which is how do you kind of balance that, that need? Like, I feel like I become a bit hysterical when I do this kind of work like I want to give it my all and spend all my time doing on it um, yeah. but on the other hand this I mean I would say like even up to today there isn't a huge community of people who are interested in the intersection of yeah. medicine and public health yeah. I think uh, it's always understood in very simplistic ways like oh no money refer medical social worker correct that kind of thing yeah. um yeah, and I think public health is still seen as rather separate from medicine. Like doctors can afford to not know about policies, even okay. if it affects the, the health of the patient. So I was wondering, like, as a medical did you ever have those questions, like grappling it, like, oh, you I should did... just go study instead? Yeah, I definitely did. And, um, and I think this is where I think my American training has really offered me insights and perhaps a more formal system of thinking about these issues. Um, so the two things that have really been impressed upon me through my training in a residency program here is that firstly, as physicians, we are also advocates for our patients um, on an individual level, um, but also at a systems level, which really means that as a physician um, who's encountering patients from a variety of backgrounds, you really cannot be divorced from the policies that are being made by lawmakers and policymakers that actually influence their lives and consequently their health. Because ultimately you're, in, um, you're at the other end of the spectrum where you are dealing with the consequences of some policies. Therefore, I personally feel that um, it is our responsibility, um, no matter which setting we're practicing in, to actually intersect with policies, because in doing so, you're actually advocating for your patients. Um, and we are not just physicians, we're also advocates. So I think that has really been impressed upon me during residency training. And I saw many of my colleagues and mentors very actively involved in the process of advocacy. Um, uh, so to give you uh, very specific examples, one of our current residents right now, actually she's just finished residency, Lucy Marcel. Um, she's a pediatrician at Boston Medical Center who started a whole enterprise to help low-income patients um, file taxes while they're in the waiting rooms to be seen by their physicians and to help get tax credits. And you might think, what's so relevant about that to medicine? But it's an absolutely important um, 
initiative because many of these families are low income. They do not have the literacy to be able to, for example, claim all the benefits that they could have. Um, many families suffer, you know, experience food insecurity, they experience housing instability um, in our context. And, uh, and really to have somebody guide them through something as basic as filing your taxes, being able to claim tax credits can in fact have a huge impact, right? So that's one example of advocacy. In our hospital, we actually have what's called a children's advocacy network, where a group of individuals have a pulse on the policies that shape um, health. So one, and so routinely, many physicians, um, as well as administrators from the hospital go to go to the parliament here to testify about how policies are impacting our patients. So one recent testimony that I was able to provide was on why undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts should be given the right to have a driver's license. And very many of us wrote in letters and testified to lawmakers about the impact that not having a driving license, a driver's license has on patients being able to come to appointments um, uh, from cities that are not close to the hospital, for example, and that this really does affect, you know, compliance and many of these patients have complex health issues. Um, and um, one of my colleagues, in fact, um, drove a patient herself to his clinic appointments because he had um, acquired tuberculosis in an immigrant detention camp um, and in fact had tuberculosis of the heart and needed prolonged treatment, but didn't have a driver's license and couldn't drive. Um, and so she offered that testimony. But I think um, to see my colleagues be involved in so many advocacy efforts um, um, and using our expertise to inform some of those efforts, I think is the way to really integrate that is one, one example. Um, I think I can give you that. The other thing I've seen many of my colleagues do, and something that I'm starting to do more increasingly, is actually to write op-eds um, um, such that uh, issues can really be expressed to lay people to garner support for some of your work or some of your research. Um, so one recent op-ed that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that I wrote was about a specific immigration policy affecting some of my chronically ill patients, um, and in fact, um, terminally ill patients. Um, so under the Trump administration, there was a policy change um, to medical deferred action. So a group of children and families in the US who are immigrants are been given the status so that uh, because of their chronic illness, they can continue to live in the US and receive these life-saving treatments. Now, many of these kids have cancer. One of our patients has cystic fibrosis and I treated a lung transplant recipient who was in fact dying. And this policy allowed her father to stay in the US for her last days. Um, but suddenly out of the blue, they decided to end that entire status, which meant that our patients essentially were told tomorrow you have to leave the country. And these are chronically ill patients and seriously ill patients. And so colleagues and myself essentially came together and wrote an op-ed. I gave an interview about that. And many of us um, routinely write in the popular press. We write prospective pieces to educate our fellow physicians about these issues um, in various journals. Um, um, and I think that's another way where I've learned um, to really use my expertise to educate 
fellow physicians and healthcare professionals, but also the larger public. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to get better at. Um, but I think these are some ways to actually strategically um, intersect some of your interests, some of your interests and expertise um, uh, with the issues that you care about. And I think because I'm an academic, I've realized also that, you know, you can do academia and literally have your knowledge impact a small group of people or just have five people read your journal article, if at all they ever read it. Um, but then I think we as academics also need to do a better job of pushing the issues out into the larger public uh, to make them aware. You know, they're actually the other thing that I wish I had had more training in in medical school is actually writing. And it's something that I'm trying to take courses in. So there are actually uh, former journalists who offer these courses in writing perspective pieces or op-eds um, and how to communicate some of your work um, so that it reaches a larger audience. And I think I really would like to do a little bit more of that formal training or even a short course on how to um, write better. And I don't just mean, you know, writing an article for a journal, whatever, that's, um, you know, there's a format for that. And medical writing is different, but I want to be able to write more um, to communicate better. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's why I really bemoan the lack of a broad education that I got. I wish I had the wisdom that I have right now. Um, and in retrospect, I probably would have done an undergrad degree before I went into medical school just for the breadth of education. So to give you a perfect example, my husband, who is American, essentially, you know, grew up here, was born and raised in the U.S. and did college, medical school and medical training here. And his undergraduate degree was in anthropology. Um, which um, he has continued to use um, in his research now. Um, and so when I look at his writing and my writing, I can see a difference in the depth of our writing. And that really comes from, I think, the differences in the broad education that he received and I received. Um, and some of those deep experiences, those additional years uh, really helped him have that I feel like I never had. I just went directly to medical school and then to training. And so I feel like I'm playing catch up to some extent now. <laughs> and I don't think, I think there are all of these things that should be options in our medical education. Ultimately, it's a matter of exposure, right? For me, coming to the US and training here, I think the biggest Biggest, biggest benefit has been the exposure more than anything and the diversity of training opportunities um, and really the people that I trained with. I entered residency here when I was 28 and I was one of the youngest people in my residency program. Many were in their 30s, many had families, many had entirely different careers. Um, one of my senior residents was a teacher for 10 years before she decided that she wanted to go into medical school. But as a result, she brought a lot of her education background to really doing research in medical education. Um, one of my other residents was a, was a literature major um, and for her research actually did a lot of work on introducing poetry to uh, chronically ill kids and what that impact was. She studied that in a more formal way um, she worked in the sickle cell uh, disease population. Um, uh, so it was really very interesting to really train with people who had already had advanced degrees or brought an entirely different perspective um, to things. The other thing that I recognized is um, really looking at people who were passionate about that one thing and just kept chipping at it. Um, 
I think I found many people who are very comfortable in their skin um, here, people who were very assured about what their purpose was and what they were passionate about. Um, and so there isn't that crazy competition. You know, it really isn't about, oh, you got an A, I got a B. Oh my God, I need to do better than you. Um, there wasn't that. Everybody was just very secure as individuals because everybody recognized that this is what I'm passionate about. There's a place for me in the world for me to do this. I'm going to go all out. I'm going to keep chipping away at it. And as a result, you know, there's, I really saw the work products as being very creative, but also really pushing the field. Um, one of my good friends who's currently a professor in adolescent medicine at Hopkins, Errol Fields, had done a lot of work in black communities and black men who have sex with men. Even prior to residency, he had an MPH and PhD, and he has really pushed that field. And he's one of the leaders now in the country um, when it comes to black men uh, who have sex with men and some of the health issues that uh, concern them. Um, so I think to even train with fellow residents who had these passions and just kept working at it, I think gave me a glimpse to, to ask myself, what is it that you care about? What can you do about that? How do you keep chipping away at that? Um, and um, I think I had, I had always been that person in medical school, but I had fewer examples of that around me. I think coming to the US, I just had very many more examples of that. Um, so I think it's really the exposure more than anything. Other than that, I would say, you know, what medicine, what training in Singapore really gave me was a very solid foundation for very many things. And for that, I would be very, very grateful eternally. Um, I think I got very, very strong clinical training and a very strong foundation. Um, but I think my breadth of training or rather my world has expanded by, um, by continuing to train in the US. Yeah, um, actually, I was wondering, like, um, so, like, I, I felt like after I came back from that year at year, I wanted to push a lot of the activities which I was interested in a lot harder than I even did before. Um, yeah. I mean, like, before before I left, I did this thing called the Medicine and Literature Club. Um, mm -hmm. But after I left, um, I, I started this podcast, um, and I wanted to do a lot more research into the things which I was seriously interested in, like mm -hmm. ethnicity or gender. Um but I guess like something which I do hear quite a lot from not just my classmates, um, but also some professors is, oh, um, this is not the right approach in Singapore. So I was wondering like, what are your thoughts if like in terms of bringing yeah. culture here in Singapore? Yeah, to be very honest, I think that's, that's outdated thinking because there are very many commonalities in medicine and medical training that actually transcend boundaries. So I'm going to talk about two issues because I realize it's not anything that I reflected upon during my training, but I realized was definitely um, very, very relevant to the local context. One was training in implicit bias. And I cannot tell you the number of times where I was guilty of implicit bias as a medical student, as well as a junior physician in Singapore. Now, looking back, I realized that that's how I was operating from a place of implicit bias. Yet I had never heard of that term or even received formal training in that until I moved here. And I realized that, hey, implicit bias was something that I was guilty of even in Singapore. So to say that it is a Western concept or that this training is not applicable to Singapore is certainly not true. Um, 
I think I certainly had implicit bias when approaching certain types of patients, for example, suboptimally compliant patients I had certain biases. Um, or for example, how I viewed patients of a particular race. I'm going to be open, open about that because I realized that um, I had not reflected on that in my training because I did not even recognize that it was something that I needed to reflect upon. It was never part of my training formally. Um, so I think concepts like that are really universal. The other thing is really training to provide culturally competent care. And you wonder why is that relevant? The truth is it is relevant because we are a multiracial society. We keep talking about how that is one of our strengths is that Singapore is a multiracial society. And yet, how do we understand culturally competent care? Um, it's not anything that I was ever introduced to. And I realized I struggled a lot as a medical student and as a junior doctor when it came to getting informed consent from that elderly Hokkien speaking lady that I had to go get informed consent from in the middle of the night without an interpreter. Um, I realized I was not giving culturally competent care. Um, neither did I have the resources. We have never had a system of formal interpreters in our public institutions or our hospitals. We just grab whoever is available. And yet I realized many of my therapeutic encounters, now I was not gifted like some physicians in Singapore speak 10 languages. I'm certainly not gifted that way. Um, but yet, you know, I was certainly not lesser in my desire to offer a fully therapeutic encounter to my patients. And yet I felt ill-equipped to do that. Um, and neither did I ever recognize the importance of doing that. And you re recognize that it's actually important. For example, language barriers are a huge reason why patients do not do certain things or suboptimally are com not compliant. Um, so I think um, that was the other thing that's that strikes to me as actually universal. Cultural competency is universal regardless of which culture you're in. You know, culture is a common term. Um, and so I think, I think we really have to challenge. So those are two areas I can specifically talk about that I think would be very relevant to the Singaporean context. It just hasn't made it to our mainstream thought yet. And therefore I think we need to introduce these ideas so that more people can reflect on it and recognize that it's not, it's not a Western concept. It's not, an, it's not a completely um, unrelatable concept. Yeah, and I, th I think you should totally share your example of, you know, implicit bias in terms of, you know, if you read a particularly particular patient vignette about an alcoholic in Singapore, what are the immediate thoughts that this, if you didn't know the race or age of the patient, you might be naturally inclined to think that this has to be an Indian middle-aged man, right? But yet, you know, we don't question why are we forming this? Where are we getting these ideas from, right? And we've not been thought to approach our patients that way. The other thing that I feel like I did a little less of, um, but do more of now is really collaborative family-centered care. I mean, I do uh, pediatrics, right? And so um, the concept of really working with families, understanding what their goals of care are um, and doing family-centered rounds, for example, where parents are also active participants of your rounds. It's not a concept that I ever had. And yet I realized that, you know, I spent very little time, like rounds were just always rushed every time I was on search because you had so many patients in Singapore. And a part of that time, you know, I've been thinking about 
a little bit more about how it's actually a concept that would be very relevant to Singapore as well. It may be new to families as it was here, but that doesn't mean that families may not appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the medical team, right? So I really think we need to really question some of these things that we label as being foreign concepts of Western values or ideals. There are many things in medicine that are common. Medical humanism is relevant no matter where you live or where you practice. I have to wonder if anyone is listening, any educators are listening, because certainly this cannot be, I mean, I think there needs to be a quorum of medical students who say we want these experiences, right? Um, uh, but just because there isn't that interest among medical students, sometimes you're not interested because you just don't know it even exists, right? You just don't have the exposure. So ultimately, I think the onus is on educators to really explore some of the areas that you and I have talked about. Yeah, thanks so much for saying all that. I think we found the perfect person to talk about such issues here in Singapore. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, not just the example of the Indian alcoholic. There's so many other examples that I could. I mean, I haven't heard this phrase personally. There was a thing called Indianitis, or Indian people were faking their pain in all the. Correct, yeah. Was that something you heard as well? Well, there's a lot of, this is especially true of migrant workers who come to the ED, right, where their sense that, um, you know, they keep saying pain and pain and they're really just faking their pain. And I think we really need to challenge that, right, about how different cultures experience and express pain. And is that an expression of other determinants of health that we actually never encounter? uncover, right? We do not know about what their employment situation is, for example, or are they under distress in their current work life, working in their current uh, work circumstances, or are there other circumstances in their life that is pressing, that is manifesting as pain? None of us ever explore that because A, you do not have the time to explore that. You don't have the time to sit and talk to your patient when you have to quickly just move, 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 move. Um, and second is it's not even in our consciousness to actually explore these things. Um, and like you said, we just say refer to social worker if there is some sort of a social issue. You don't ever recognize that as a physician, you too have to be very heavily involved in some of those aspects in order to have a successful therapeutic outcome, right? So it isn't just a social worker's job. Your job isn't done by just referring to social workers. And so I think, I think that's something that just wasn't as much in my consciousness, number one. Number two is that really working in a multidisciplinary way was something that I think is also something that I learned to appreciate a little bit more here. Uh, I think we can be very much informed with the work of social scientists and there's a lot of intersection, I think, between health and social sciences um, that increasingly, my husband, for example, I was telling you is um, doing a lot of work in slums in Mumbai and is working with the sociologist to address some of those issues. Um, so I think we in medicine should not shy away from doing interdisciplinary work and seeking the expertise of other colleagues to address some of these issues that matter to us or you're seeing our issues that impact our patients. I think we need to approach it in very many different angles and we do not have all of the expertise. I think we can certainly gain the expertise of economists, we can gain the expertise of sociologists, political scientists, really health policy um, experts to I think uh, really address 
complex issues in a more holistic way. So I'm going to give you a perfect example where I hope some of my work, currently I work with injection drug users in India, but many of my lessons are pretty universal. And if you look at injection drug use pretty much all over the world, there are very many commonalities. But when you actually look at some of our laws in Singapore with regards to drug use, they're actually not in keeping with the science. It's the same with laws um, in Singapore and HIV. They aren't entirely in keeping with the advances um, that science has brought about in these fields. So um, I think a lot about that, both in our local context, as well as, you know, in the country that I work with in India, um, where I've done some work um, looking at uh, criminalization, whether that's ultimately beneficial for health outcomes among injection drug users. Um, but very many researchers actually work in this intersection of health law and policy. Even as a resident, I really had ownership for my patients and had to organize all of these multidisciplinary meetings. So one of the patients that actually I'm still in touch with that I took care of as a first year resident um, was this young child who was born to an intellectually challenged mother. Um, and she was so challenged that even she couldn't make her own health decisions. Um, and at some point, it became very obvious that it was getting increasingly challenging for her to take care of her baby. She, in the early stages, she, she was very concrete. She could do tasks like mixing formula. But when it came to engaging with her child or fostering development in the child, it was, it was very, very challenging. And so even though there was a system of multiple nurses visiting the home, they often found that the child was sitting in the crib, not really interacting with his mother. Um, sometimes he just hadn't been bathed for days. So it became, it became, for the child's benefit, it became imperative for us to essentially put him under the custody of the state and ultimately find him a better living environment with continued involvement of his mother. But I, as a resident, was responsible for making some of these decisions, talking to the state agencies, organizing these family meetings, and ultimately doing what was right for the child. Um, and I think that degree of ownership was something that I really only had after coming to the U.S. I realized in my training that it was the consultant's job and the consultant sort of made the decisions. Whereas here, as a resident, my consultant or my attending actually guided me through these decisions that so she was always there as a backup. But ultimately, the patient was mine. And I think that ownership really made me more invested in some of their social issues and really, really addressing social determinants of health was as much my responsibility as a physician as it was the social worker's responsibility. I relied on the expertise of the social worker, but ultimately the patient was mine. Um, so I think it was these frameworks of approaching patients um, um, that I think definitely changed. And it certainly is an approach that I think many of our physicians in Singapore do do practice. So I do not want to negate that at all. Um, but it's something that's not a conscious part of our training, or at least was not a part of my training. Things may have changed, like I said. <laughs> I haven't started being a houseman or a, a MO yet, but I don't think it's part of my training as well in medical school as of now. Actually, I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like to talk about that I haven't covered? Yet? I think one thing, one thing that I talked about is how as uh, physicians, we need to be, um, I think we need, we need to 
recognize that we don't live in silos for part of society and that um, we need to be contributing to policy discussions. And so I think one thing I would urge, I think medical students uh, in whatever area that they pick, be it diabetes, even an area such as diabetes can have intersection with policies uh, in Singapore or cancer or palliative care. There are very many areas where I think we as physicians can be involved in and influencing policy. And that's not something that any of us should shy away from.